Hello and welcome to Making Them a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And uh, today I am going to be continuing with this mini-series on social life in the Anthropocene. If you haven't started at the beginning, please do. Not the beginning of the entire podcast, that's crazy. At the beginning of this mini-series. Ideally, this mini-series will serve as a dry run for a lecture course that I might teach if I'm lucky enough to actually pass my orals and actually, you know, complete dissertation research and write my dissertation and get hired. And so it's important to start from the beginning to get the overarching sense of the argument of the class. In short, what it's doing is it's taking an ecological view of modern cultural history and arguing that we can see a lot of the changes that people have associated with modern urban social change as results of things that I'm going to call environmental, uh, new kinds of energy usage, new environmental pressures, and so on. Now, I promised the pair of episodes that will come out today on Saturday, and there were no episodes on Saturday, and I simply have to say I was really burnt out. Uh, I realized something as I was laying on the couch reading, um, trying to get through another book, and that is that sometimes during my orals, I've been able to push myself to really kind of, to, to myself, amazing um, moments of productivity. I've been able at some points last week to read five, even six books a day and to record two podcasts that I think were kind of good. But the thing is, is that even though sometimes I'm able to push myself to these, you know, real limits of productivity, not always. So last week, I got really nervous because my orals were a month away, and this spurred me to work really, really hard. And after the first couple days when I was able to do a ton of stuff each day, I thought, this is the new normal. I can do this much work every single day. I can work through Saturday. I don't need to take a day off. And unfortunately, this was not true. I thought Saturday was going to be a work day, and I spent the entire day on the couch pretending to work reading but really slowly, thinking about the podcast that I had to uh, record with dread, thinking about the essays that I needed to grade just like they were a stone around my neck, and I realized that I need to take a break sometimes. It took me 32 years to realize that. 33, oh my god. Anyway, today uh, our episode is going to be on what I call unwanted visitors. And like all episodes in this series, we're going to do deal with two interconnecting topics. First, I'm going to be talking about health in the city. Uh, the broad story is how increasing urban populations led there to be particular kinds of solutions drawn up to uh, new urban health problems. The second story that I'm going to be telling is about how the city is not just this place of human action, but also a place where uh, we have populations of animals. And I want to talk about animals in the city as a further way of making this argument that the city is not a place where nature ends. Modernity is not a place where nature ends. It is a place where nature is changed where the relationships between animals, humans, things, and plants change, but not where they're cut off completely. So let's talk about the city as a health problem. Cities 
were always death traps. If you read anything about medieval urban life, you will see that always the natural increase of cities was usually less than their death rates. That means that the number of people who are born in the city walls are usually somewhat less than the number of people who died within the city walls. And this means for cities to keep up their uh, populations, they need immigrants. They need people coming from more demographically favorable areas over and over again. So when we think about the long history of urbanism, we have to think of the city as constantly sucking in generation after generation of farmers, mountain men, shepherds, soldiers, sailors, all who are coming to the city willingly or unwillingly to find a new home. And we have to imagine this constant treadmill of people also being ground down by death and disease. So why is the city such a death trap? The naive reason, I don't want to call it naive, but the basic reason is that cities were unhealthy, that people did not clean up after themselves very well. Uh, people would empty out their chamber pots out the window, uh, you know, people would toss out their food just in the street, there were dogs and cats and pigs roaming through the city. It was a smelly place. People didn't have, you know, spas or indoor showers to wash themselves. But this is not a complete explanation because these same limits on human sanitation operated as well in the rural and mountain areas that we take as clean. So there's something else going on. A more sophisticated answer to this comes from looking at what the city actually is. We often imagine a city as just a bunch of buildings, a highly dense concentration of people kind of split off from the surrounding world. But cities are actually better thought of as networks of trade and people that extend far beyond the city walls. Every city is defined by its hinterland, that belt of agricultural production that serves the city. Uh, the farms and the pastures where the city gets its bread and its milk and its water and its people from. But also, the city is connected in various ways and to various extents with the wider world. The city is a place where people come to trade. And so these networks don't just go around the rural hinterlands that surround the city, but also can be spread out on far more distant and far more, you know, extended networks. So if we think of the city of London, it not only has people coming in from, you know, the south and the north, but it also has ships coming in from uh, the uh, Mediterranean, from the Baltic, from America, all bringing people and goods and objects and diseases. So this openness to the world that cities have, and not just a mental openness, but a physical openness, means that cities have a much greater exposure to uh, pestilence. And we should also recognize that European cities, Eurasian cities, are especially uh, targeted for this kind of pestilence because Eurasia, this big, gigantic, connected landmass, has lots and lots of people who are from, say, the 15th century connected by links of global trade. And so if there's a disease in one part of the world, it spreads slowly to the other parts. Big story here, of course, is plague, the Black Death, 
uh, cholera, all of these Eurasian diseases, smallpox, that over and over again spread from one part of Eurasia to the others. So I've just established that cities always had problems with disease and sanitation, but this seems to go against the wider argument of the course that sometime around the late 18th century, the way that cities interacted with their environments changed. We can make a comparison to the story that I told about coal smoke last episode. We should be reluctant to draw too you know, strict a line in the sand that says that the environmental problems of the modern world started with, uh, you know, a Watts steam engine or something in 1780. Coal smoke was a problem in London from at least the 17th century, and urban sanitation was a problem, you know, from at least the moment that cities were created. What really changed was not the uh, fact that cities were dirty, it was the extent of the dirtiness and also the rise of people in institutions who could recognize the problem and get a certain amount of collective action to try to solve it. So in other words, the, the problem is not merely one of an increased ecological footprint of humans. That's part of it, of course. The other side of the problem is an increased ability of civil society to respond to these problems. So I'm going to look at this through studying one particular moment in the history of London, and that is about how London dealt with its poop. Before the 19th century, uh, one of the main ways that people dealt with fecal matter in London was a cesspool. Uh, people uh, pooped into outhouses or emptied uh, chamber pots into cesspools that were basically just holes in the ground, hopefully with some drainage that didn't go into the water supply, that would periodically be emptied by the euphemistically known night soil men. Night soil men would come over with, you know, shovels and dig up the cesspool into a uh, cart and then cart it off to the agricultural hinterland where this fecal matter was used as agricultural fertilizer. We can see here an early response to agricultural limits of uh, the nitrogen cycles. Poop has a lot of nitrogen. Human poop is a good fertilizer. And so this was one way that pre-modern agriculture was trying to deal with the limit on uh, biologically available nitrogen um, before we have nitrogen fixing uh, chemical processes. But with the increasing population density of London, emptying out these cesspits became a problem for a number of interlocking reasons, a perfect storm maybe. First, people at the time claimed uh, that people had less money to empty the cesspools, that, that there was a, an economic problem, that people could uh, stop emptying the cesspools for a while if they were short on money, and this meant that the cesspools got too big and so nobody wanted to empty them, and sometimes the cesspits would, you know, collapse and spread their crap over, you know, people. There's hideous stories in uh, Edwin Chadwick's report on the health of towns and cities about people living in basements where the wall caves in because it's next to a cesspit and they get drowned in poop. Um, second, there's a lot more people in the city. And so each cesspit is having a greater load of people using it, which means that it needs to be emptied more frequently uh, and that this is getting to be a greater problem. Also, 
because there's an increase in supply of night soil, there's a decrease in the price that night soil men could sell their poop for, which meant that there was less of an economic incentive for the night soil men to do their job. And finally, because the city was growing geographically, the farms, the agricultural hinterland that would buy the night soil were getting further and further away, leading to an increase in transport costs for this. The solution was the flush toilet. So to understand why the flush toilet was a solution, we have to understand the problem that people saw. And to understand the problem, we have to think about how people in the 19th century understood disease, particularly contagious disease. We've talked about this in the past. The idea was that disease was caused by miasmas, by icky smells, mostly biological smells. And if you think that miasmas are the biggest problem of disease, well, night soil was a huge generator of these miasmas because you have improperly decomposing biological matter deep in the hearts of towns. The flush toilet was a solution to this because it did not pollute the air. It took fecal matter and put it into the water where it wouldn't smell as much. And these flush toilets, even though they were expensive and required indoor plumbing, started to become increasingly popular. One of the moments that we can point to is 1851, when the Great London Exhibition happened. And in the Great London Exhibition, the toilets were flush toilets. And it was probably the first time that the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who went to the London Exhibition saw and used a flush toilet. And from then, the use of flush toilets increased dramatically. In 1850, uh, in London, there were 270,000 houses hooked up to water lines, and each house used 160 gallons of water a day. Six years later, 320,000 people had water in their houses, and each house used 250 gallons a day. People were using a ton more water, and this was because of an increase in indoor plumbing and the growing popularity of flush toilets. Uh, the other place where people found flush toilets were railway stations, that other temple to modernity. And flush toilets worked. No more cesspools, no more smell. The waste would go cleanly and invisibly away, safely flushed out into the river that would, through natural biological processes, clean itself out. And just to emphasize, if people in the 19th century, before they understood, you know, uh, modern ideas of disease, had to make a choice between polluting the air and polluting the water, they would choose to pollute the water every single time. The air was where disease was spread. Disease was caused by poor air. In one of his more, you know, authoritarian and wild ideas, Edwin Chadwick, the great sanitary reformer, suggested that London build big, you know, steel structures like the Eiffel Tower that would have fans on them, that would circulate clean air from the atmosphere down into the dirty towns, and that would solve disease. But the flush toilet led to massive deaths. And to tell this part of the story, we need to take a trip around the world to the cities of India, when perhaps due to climactic changes related to the eruption of Mount Tambora in 1815, a little bacteria called cholera 
started to spread around the world. And this bacteria hitched itself on those same uh, uh, networks that spread the ideas and people and objects and trade goods and ships that uh, knit together this whole global economy that's been the subject of this course. The bacteria of cholera went on ships the same way that coffee and tea did, the same way that Australian immigrants did, the same way that slaves did, and they went, these bacteria, to the same extended world. You catch cholera by drinking water that's been infected by choleric fecal matter. Even a tiny bit will do you. It doesn't need to be, uh, you know, doesn't need to be grimy water. A small amount will infect you. And cholera was a deeply disturbing disease. Not only was it deadly, but it was disgusting and quick. Reading contemporary accounts about the spread of cholera is like reading the worst gross-out horror movie you've ever seen. We have stories of people on a bus who are just sitting and reading the newspaper, and then all of a sudden, they poop themselves, and they don't stop pooping, and they die. The bus gets off at its station in 10 minutes, and the person is dead. People can be at dinner parties or dances, dressed up in their finery at night, laughing with their friends in one moment, and then all of a sudden on the dance floor, their bowels erupt and they keep on pooping until they die. It spread like wildfire through cities. In 1831 to 2, in the cholera outbreak there, there was 6,000 uh, deaths. In 1848 to 9, there were 14,000 deaths. In 1854, there were 10,000 deaths. And then after uh, people started to change the sewers, in 1866, the last cholera outbreak, there were only 5,000 deaths. So to tell the story of how the cholera outbreaks in London were mitigated and then ended, we need to call on two heroes. And it has not been the style of this podcast or this historian to emphasize, you know, heroes, especially white male civil engineer heroes that used to be the topics of uh, British history for dozens and dozens of years. But in this story, we're going to make an exception. The first hero is Jon Snow, not the Game of Thrones character Jon Snow. Jon Snow was a medical man who lived in London, and he was convinced that cholera was spread through corrupted water. To test this, he did something that seems very modern. He did a statistical study of the people in a cholera outbreak and showed to modernize conclusively that a particular infected pump, the Broad Street pump, was a mechanism through which a particular infected family in turn infected their entire neighborhood. People who drew their water from the Broad Street pump got cholera. People who drew their water from another pump did not. To us, this has often been told as a story of the rise of medical rationality, the rise of scientific thinking, the end of the miasmatic idea of the spread of disease. Because this, the mechanism of spread, is not smells, but rather invisible stuff in water. The water from the Broad Street pump did not smell any worse than the water from the other pumps. It did not look any worse, but it had invisible stuff in it that made it poisonous. However, this story of a triumphant rise of uh, people finally understanding through the miraculous uh, mechanism of statistics that cholera was spread by water is not true. 
people were not convinced. The miasmists, uh, Chadwick and his disciples, made their own set of statistics where they looked at all of the deaths in London and argued that, no, actually, the big contributor to death statistically was elevation, not water. Places at a lower elevation had higher deaths than places at a higher elevation, which is what you would find if you believed that uh, disease was spread through bad air, because the bad air would gather in places of low elevation. The other hero of the story is Joseph Bazalgate, a civil engineer who designed the modern London sewers. The problem was that uh, cholera was spreading because these new flush toilets emptied their effluvia out into the Thames, and they emptied only at low tide. But this meant that there was no mechanism for the river to flush itself out. The natural raising and lowering of the tides that would otherwise have carried out the crap to the ocean was kind of dammed up by, uh, you know, emptying out the sewage only at low tides. And to solve this, to make sure that the uh, effluvia could be released at high tide, you needed a massive engineering project com to completely redivert all of the uh, sewers of London to uh, particular kinds of sewage facilities that would hold off the sewage until the tide changed. People noticed that the River Thames was getting gross. After 1815, when it became legal to empty sewage into the Thames, uh, the water started to get brown and icky. Uh, people were still catching salmon in the River Thames in 1816, and I think that there was a, a catch of salmon as late as the 1830s, but I could be wrong. But uh, people started to widely complain about the smell and the color and everything. Things came to a head in 1858, the Great London Stink, when the newly opened Houses of Parliament had their summer sessions disrupted because of the hideous smell of the river. And the river smelled hideous. It was something that you could not ignore. You could not say that this was no longer a problem. Legend says that Disraeli, the great conservative political leader, uh, ran away from the sessions of, uh, uh, of Parliament holding a, a handkerchief to his mouth retching. That was how bad things got. And because it influenced the political nation, because this bad, bad smell was in the noses of all of the politicians making all of the decisions, they decided to give Joseph Bazalgate finally the kinds of wide discretionary powers that he needed to recreate the London sewage system. The result was the sewage system of modern London, pretty much, and the creation of the Victoria, Albert, and Chelsea embankments that mark the uh, city today. But still, this is not a complete modernization story. The, 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 the effluvia was still being released into the Thames untreated. It wasn't until 1880s that there was a new journalistic uh, clamor over uh, the stink of London, and people continually complained that people were releasing raw sewage into the river, that this uh, new authority over sewers created water sewage treatment plants that separated out the solid waste matter from the water. And, you know, very interestingly, they then took the solid waste matter, put it onto boats, took those boats out into the ocean, and then dumped it into the ocean. Uh, that was their way of, you know, solving it. 
Today, interestingly enough, the sewage system takes that same solid water and incinerates it. And those incinerators are used to turn dynamos that, you know, power the water sewage treatment plants that take out the solid waste matter from the uh, sewage. And this actually is a net uh, creator of energy. This puts energy into the national grid, which is pretty amazing. So let's move on now to the second part of this uh, mini-series, uh, where we'll be dealing with the history of animals. So in the story I just told about poop, cholera, and toilets, I've tried to paint a picture of a modern city that sees this city as an environment. Not just a place where politicians go and talk about big ideas, not just a machine for making Voltaires, not just a place for industry and economics, but a place filled with animals, including humans, a place filled with microbes, a place where, that is still deeply wrapped up in natural processes like the nitrogen and water cycle. There's a completely different track of this story that we could tell, where the modernity that I'm talking about created a impassable firewall between humanity and nature. And that's probably our naive view of the history of this story. Modernity came, everybody moved to cities, gave up agriculture, and nature is somehow distant from us. I'm trying to tell a very different story where the rise of cities and modernity never distances us from nature. It changes the relationship of nature. To tell this story, I want to look at the history of nature in the city. So first, there's agriculture in the cities, even in the 19th century. Uh, you don't need to be an expert in von Thunen zones to figure out why there's agriculture in the city. Transport was difficult, and it was often economical to have people growing food within the city limits. In the 18th century, many London landmarks that you might see with the name Fields on it, like Leicester Fields or uh, uh, places like that, were actually fields with cows. Now they're, of course, places where people live. And as the density of these cities increased, you did start to get a uh, process where people settled into these unsettled areas, leaving aside only parks, say, at the center of squares, or uh, large areas that have been set aside for some reason as pleasure grounds. A lot of the parks in London were originally hunting grounds that were set aside so that the king could have animals to kill for fun, because that's what, you know, elite British people like to do. But even as the city was encroaching on the agricultural lands deep within its heart, there was still nature there. There were still veggie gardens. People still kept pigs and, go. you know, people still drove cows on the hoof to the places where they would be slaughtered. And if you think that this has ended, remember that uh, the urban garden is not a modern invention. People have been keeping allotments and uh, turning a, a wasteland into gardens for the entire history of urban life. But maybe more interesting is the story of pets, because animals were not simply things that people used. They were also things that people developed deep emotional connections to. 
Um, it seems that there was an increase in pet owning in the 18th century, and there's a lot of uh, different explanations for this. One is the story that we've talked about before, which is the rise of commercialization. In this account, pets are like other kinds of objects that people enjoy owning. They are uh, wrapped up in a new kind of market transaction where people save their money and buy the things that they want so that they can, you know, gain pleasure from consumption. There's also a spread of exotic pets that we can connect up with the growing imperial footprint of Britain. As Britain starts to trade in increasingly large global networks, the imperial market, the center of it all, London, has now animals from far-flung places. Squirrels from North America, wild monkeys, canaries, all that are being sold as pets to be kept in the home and doted on and loved. There's also an increase in specialization here. Uh, the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries is the point in time where you get the modern dog breeds. If you look on Wikipedia and read the history of dog breeds, which I guess I do sometimes, I now realize, uh, you will see that a lot of these dog breeds get locked in in the 18th century. And thus we can connect this part of the story with other stories in which urban diversity creates new kinds of specialization. Not only do you get hunting dogs or, you know, mutts that help out on the farm, but you also get new kinds of dogs that exist only for human companionship. Toy dogs, pet dogs, lap dogs, you know, spaniels that just want to sit in your lap and, you know, move around their little wet noses at you. And there's also a gender story in here, because dogs are often uh, associated with the same kinds of frivolous uh, commercial activity that women were. The dog, like the woman, is a creature of the city that runs on appetite, not reason. Women dote on their dogs, and they also waste money on things like fashion. Of course, I don't believe that. That is the cultural script that sometimes was circulating in the 18th century. Now, there's a way in which people have argued that the rising popularity of pets was caused by this widening gulf between the natural and the human. As the world where animals and people naturally live together, and that is the rural world, started to dry out, in the modern world, people felt this lack and replaced it by creating kind of these specialized creatures that served only to be a repository of the love of nature that we've lost. I, of course, disagree. I actually think that the continued use of pets in the domestic home shows us that the lines between natural and urban are really weird because the lap dog lives at home all the time. In some ways, when we think about the separation of the spheres where men in the home are liminal, they're in between the public world and the private world, they're in between the city and the home, the domestic animal, like the young child, is much more domestic. They are pure domesticity. They live only in the home. They are only creatures of pillows and walks and toys. They're not animal at all. They are more modern than we are. Maybe you don't believe that, but imagine how we relate to our animals today. Imagine how your dog looks at you. They are no less... Uh, affected by living in an urban environment as we are.
And finally, I want to widen out our lens of talking about these visitors uh, by moving from those animals that humans welcome in intentionally to those animals that hitch rides with us. These are called technically synanthropes, uh, creatures that live uh, in symbiotic relationships with humans. And the big point of this is I want to make... I want to emphasize that even as the city is growing, even as people are getting an increased power over the natural world, whatever that means, even as we're able to make ports and railroads and embankments and sewage systems, we do not create the city with complete impunity. We do not affect nature as if it were a mathematical formula that we can perfectly balance. There are always people who stow away with us. Look around the city that you live in. There are more rats in New York than there are people. Your urban life is surrounded by animals that you do not realize are there. Uh, I know that my back garden is often overrun by urban raccoons that are, you know, a problem in Oakland. I actually watched once, horrifyingly, a, a baby raccoon get murdered. I can only use that word, murdered, by an adult raccoon who then stomped on its dead body, and I had to clean up its dead body um, early in the morning. It was really gross. Uh, I have to give a big shout out. If you're curious about this, check out the work of the shaman, conceptual artist, and advice columnist Zardulu, uh, whose uh, massive hoaxes are doing a ton of stuff to blur this artificial line between nature and the human and the urban. It's really great. And in the Neo-Europes, we can see this process even clearer. The animals and plants that hitch rides with people leave a huge mark on their environment. And if you follow Alfred Crosby's uh, uh, argument, actually pave the way for human settlement. We can see this in Australia. If you've lived in Australia, you know that rabbits and cats, these animals that are kind of beloved of us, uh, are actually destroying a lot of the natural environment because they've gone off and gotten feral and they have no natural predators. And so they're just killing all the birds and ripping up all the earth. We can tell this story over and over again with Europeans' approach to islands. Uh, when Europeans land on islands, they often would introduce animals unwittingly or wittingly that would change the environments drastically. They'd bring rats or uh, uh, rabbits, um, goats, and then leave the islands and come back a year or two later and find the island completely changed by the introduction of these new species. Um, these animals can sometimes be symbols of the city. Think of the London fox or the urban pigeon. And let's think about the pigeon, because I think that its story is a perfect example of the story of the blurring of these boundaries, or the non-existence of these boundaries between the urban and the natural. Right now, we think of pigeons as dirty. People call them flying rats. They are a mark of the disgusting, polluted, uncontrollable process of the city. But the pigeon is not a wild animal. It is feral. It is a pet that has thrived even after it stopped being a pet. And maybe we should think of them as we're talking about them by their much nicer name, rock doves. Doves and people have been living together since people built mud houses. Um, 
doves would roost on the walls of mud houses, uh, which were similar to the cliffs that they would roost on uh, in the natural world. And humans would tolerate them because the doves provided guano, which as we remember is a great fertilizer. And in times of scarcity, uh, you could eat them and eat their eggs. And it became a symbol, the dove, of peace and monogamy. The dove, like us, was domestic. It lived in our homes. The dove, like us, had babies and raised them and worked together in couples. The dove, like us, was civilized. And you can see this through how the symbol of the dove has progressed through the modern world. In contrast to the dove, the symbol of peace, we have the dove's natural enemy, the hawk, the symbol of war. And fast forward from this uh, evolutionary moment when rock doves and people started to cohabitate all the time, in the 18th century, doves were an aristocratic food. People bred them in dovecotes, which you can often find in old buildings. Um, people bred them not just for food, but for racing, for beauty, for companionship. There's a great 19th century painting whose name I'm forgetting right now um, that shows a decadent Roman emperor uh, who is ignoring his advisors coming to him talking about the collapse of the empire, and he is focused on his decadent hobby, which is his pet pigeons. And in the modern city, as people started to live in closer quarters, as buildings rose in height, pigeons started to do better and better and better. And a lot of these pigeons that were raised in dove dovecotes would go feral. They would get lost. They would go uncared for, and they would go out into the city and live their lives without human help. And now they are a part of the city that we cannot ignore. They are uh, subject to urban planning the same way that other kinds of urban nuisances like sewage and traffic and smoke is. When people are building buildings, they have to think of pigeons and put spikes on buildings to keep them off. They have to hire hawks like they do in Trafalgar Square to shoo pigeons away. They have to spend money, allocate money in urban budgets to clean up their poop from the city streets. And I want to just stress the argument of this episode, that here in the story of our interaction between animals and bacteria, we have a mix of political, structural, biological, and cultural factors. They can't be isolated from one another. They're all working together in a strange way. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet about us, do all those things that you do with things on the internet that you like. I have to thank Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. Jonathan Lear is now on SoundCloud. Follow him. Give him money on his Bandcamp page. Thanks very much for listening, and I will speak to you guys this afternoon when I will be talking about uh, sightseeing.